0: Archbishop, your excellences, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, and those of you who are merely academics at the LSE, welcome to the annual lecture of the Hellenic Observatory for 2008. In recent years, the observatory has been very fortunate in hosting a number of very prominent Greek figures to give lectures here at the school. Uh, We've hosted uh, Costas Karamanlis, Costas Simitis, the Ecumenical Patriarch, Yanis Papandreou, uh, Dora Baku and many other uh, Greek public figures. We look forward to the prospects of future lectures here at the school uh, by George Papandreou and President Christophius, if these, if these can be arranged. Our speaker tonight is the first person we have ever invited back to give our annual lecture. So he must be good. George Alagos gave the Hellenic Observatory Lecture for 2003. At that stage, of course, George was still an aspiring opposition spokesman. So it's only right that we now invite him back. Uh, Now he's been a minister for the last four years, uh, and uh, he can face your questions, which I'm sure are going to be stimulating as always we were delighted uh, when george first gave the lecture in 2003 that some of his former teachers and colleagues from the school were with us on that uh, occasion for george is a graduate of the school having received a master's and a phd in economics uh, from the LSE. of course george has had a distinguished academic career Uh, writing widely in the fields of macroeconomics and monetary policy. His many publications include joint papers, for example, with Professor Chris Pissarivas of our economics department, and also with Professor Nikos Chrysalakis, a current visiting fellow in our Hellenic Observatory. I must say, the fact that George co-authored papers with the person who would be his predecessor and party opponents as Minister of Economy and Finance in Greece, must tell us something about the good sense of both of them. George is not only a graduate of the school, he's also been a very good friend of the London School of Economics. He has participated in several alumni events for the school in Athens, and as minister he has created an annual fellowship at the Hellenic Observatory, focused on Greece and Southeast Europe. This fellowship allows us to have an open competition each year to attract the very best young academics to come and prepare their research here at the school. The fellowship is an important part of our development of a stronger academic focus on Southeast Europe, a region, of course, that prompts so many of the most pressing questions that Europe faces today. Following the creation of the Ministry's fellowship, we've been able to create several other posts to help us make a a reality of the new focus on Southeast Europe. Tonight's lecture is part of a series of public lectures supported by FT Business, and we're grateful for its support. We're also pleased that I understand George's son and daughter are able to join us here in the audience this evening. I think it's a sign of George's affection for his alma mater that he allowed his daughter to come and study at the school. I'm not quite sure what my son and daughter would uh, think of listening to a lecture by me, and I'm not quite sure afterwards whether I would wish to hear their <laughs> comments on a lecture given by my good self. Uh, but I suppose anything which adds to the creative tension this evening is bound to be a good thing. So we're grateful for their presence as well. Last time George gave our annual lecture, his topic was the prospects for Greece in the Eurozone. His topic tonight is Europe in the global economy, offering a Greek view. And I assume he'll be speaking uh, after each of you who have switched off any mobile phone that you may have, for example, or any other electronic <laughs> device you find stimulating on this occasion. With all of the dramatic events that we have witnessed in the last few weeks, I'm not quite sure uh, whether Such a large audience is here because of your faith in the economics profession or because you wish to hold its members to some kind of account. Either way, I guess our speaker tonight fits the bill rather well. Okay, there will be plenty of time later for questions and answers. There will then be a reception to which you're all invited in the atrium, the Student Services Center just down the corridor. Uh, but first, can you please join me in welcoming back one of our most distinguished Greek alumni and someone I'm very pleased to call a friend, the Minister of Economy and Finance, Yorgos Alagoskoufis.
1: <laughs> Bishop, dear friends, I'm uh, very pleased to be back at the school. And, uh, to have the opportunity to address uh, an audience at the School on uh, Europe and the global economy. Recent events in financial markets have abruptly, suddenly maybe, reminded to all of us that we live in a highly integrated and, and risky world. We, have, uh, we all know about the revolution that is taking place in the last uh, few years on information technology, the globalization of trade and finance, the progressive spread of democracy uh, throughout the world. We have been creating a global economy and society that is more interdependent than ever. And many have uh, referred to a new global economy in the past. But now, because of the global financial and uh, economic crisis, every citizen in every country of the world is taking notice because events far away from them on many occasions are affecting their lives. At the same time, and despite the close interdependence of uh, our economies and societies, we remain extremely diverse. This diversity is cultural, it is political, and it is economic. The gap between rich and poor remains as wide as ever. Effective democratic institutions still do not exist in large parts of the world, and the new global economy may be more integrated than ever, but discrepancies remain significant. Cultural discrepancies, educational discrepancies, social, political, economic discrepancies. The financial crisis that we're experiencing uh, recently started in the US economy. It started at the heart of the global financial system. It started many months ago, more than a year ago, but it acquired a dramatic turn following the collapse of uh, Lehman Brothers in September, on September the 15th, when the global financial system entered the face of severe deleveraging, malfunctioning credit markets, unprecedented write-downs in uh, asset valuations, generalized risk aversion, and threats to the stability of the banking sector. The crisis has very rapidly spread to the real economy in the US and in the rest of the world. The financial crisis is now affecting trade, it is affecting investment, it is affecting consumption, it is affecting jobs and living standards everywhere. It may not be the first financial crisis of the new global economy, but it certainly looks like the most severe and widespread crisis that the world has experienced since the Great Depression. This crisis bears no comparison to the other incidents of financial and stock market turmoil that we have experienced since 1987. Many argue that this crisis is likely to prove a severe test, not only of financial institutions, but also of global economic governance, and even a severe test of many other national and regional, political, social, and economic institutions and policies. That no regional country will remain immune. That no institutional policy rule will escape a re-examination. That both the developed and the developing world will need to reassess their policies and their institutions. There are also those who argue that what we are experiencing is not only about financial markets but also about the way our capitalist system is uh, organized. They conclude that it will not be sufficient to re-evaluate rules about executive pay, financial market regulation, budgetary policies, monetary policies, social policies, but that a new anti-globalization agenda is what is called for. Up to now Many have been viewing globalization in solely positive terms and have been expressing very few reservations. According to this line, globalization contributes to economic benefits for everybody. The assertion is that poor countries and low-income groups come out as winners from globalization in absolute terms, even when they may lose out in relative terms. And On many occasions it was argued that traditional societies benefit from the modernization of their institutions and the abandonment of traditional social and economic models. The crisis has strengthened the hand of those skeptical or in straight opposition to this line of thought. A number of people have been arguing for many years that the benefits of globalization are not shared equally among countries, or citizens, that there are clear losers in relative terms and even in absolute terms from globalization, that poor countries and low-skilled workers in rich countries are left behind. And in addition, those skeptical of globalization have always highlighted that social and economic dislocations are associated with the modernization process and that these dislocations may lead to social unrest. There is no doubt that without broad popular acceptance, no economic or social model can eventually be sustainable. Everybody would agree that if globalization were to indeed result in growing inequality, continuous social and economic dislocations, or social unrest, or in recurring financial and economic crisis, it would eventually be undermined. Is this what? the current crisis is proving? Or is it something less fundamental and therefore susceptible to less severe corrective action? I would argue that it is yet too early to draw definitive conclusions. A lot will depend on our responses to the current crisis. Have we really learned our lessons from the Great Depression Are we avoiding the policy mistakes that led the world to a prolonged period of economic hardship and stagnation in the 1930s? Can we ensure the necessary economic and institutional adjustments that will shield the global economy from a global credit crunch and a severe contraction in consumption, investment, and employment? The crisis has indeed unveiled serious weaknesses in the functioning of our global financial and economic system. Serious regulatory and policy mistakes that have persisted for many years have contributed to the severity of the problem. Serious uh, regulatory and policy mistakes that have persisted for many years have contributed to the severity of the problem that we face today. For many years, economic risks have been seriously underestimated in the pricing of financial assets, and asset bubbles have persisted for too long, supported by an abundance of liquidity. Microeconomic imbalances have developed in in the global economy without any serious attempt for many years to address them through coordinated action. The emerging economies have not been integrated adequately to the system of global economic governance. We have seen economies growing and uh, acquiring and increasing importance in the world but without contributing to the governance of our system. And these weaknesses were apparent in minor crises that have taken place in the past. What makes today's crisis unique is uh, the fact that it has affected the core of the U.S. economy and the core of the global financial system with huge repercussions everywhere. It is not about the sovereign debt of an emerging economy like previous episodes, but about the core of the new global economy. When a financial bubble bursts, it does not make for a pretty sight. When a huge and global financial bubble bursts, then the world economy is in deep trouble, like we are today. Appropriate policy responses are called for in order to limit the damage and in order to restore confidence. It is not enough to correct the shortcomings that caused the crisis in the first place. Policy responses are required to deal with the aftermath of the crisis. Appropriate and coordinated monetary fiscal and trade policies are required to deal with the risk of a prolonged global recession, appropriate social policies are required to cushion the impact of the crisis on the poor and the unemployed, and appropriate policies to restore confidence in the financial sector are of course required. No doubt, no country and no region can respond to the crisis in isolation. What is needed is a coordinated policy response. Without coordination, even the best national policies are likely to prove beggar thy neighbor policies and are likely to prove ineffective. Global problems require global solutions. The solutions do not lie in a fortress US policy or a fortress Europe policy or in a fortress Britain policy, or even worse, in a fortress, Greece policy. The solutions must be sought in the context of an open world trading and financial system without even a hint of return to protectionism. Monetary policies and responses must continue to be coordinated at the global level. Coordination of financial regulation must be strengthened Fiscal policy coordination is also a necessary prerequisite. No country in isolation can spend its way out of trouble. If we were to embark on a Keynesian expansion of demand, this has to be coordinated at the global level. It cannot be done by any country in isolation. Despite some initial shortcomings, Europe has been responding to the crisis in a manner that inspires confidence. The European Central Bank has been extremely active in providing liquidity since the summer of 2007, although for a number of months, the thrust of monetary policy was addressed to containing inflationary pressures, because in late 2007 and early 2008, inflation was still a major problem. In coordination with the Federal Reserve, the ECB responded adequately both to the first and the second manifestation of the financial crisis. It has to be admitted, however, that we initially failed to anticipate the full extent of the crisis on the European economy. The initial assessment at the beginning of 2008 was that the European economy would escape the worst. This assessment has been fully revised since last summer. The European economy is now expected to remain stagnant, if not enter a recession, in 2009. The crisis has affected the number of banks in a variety of European countries. Unemployment is now expected to increase. The only positive sign that we get at this time is that inflation is falling, but again, this is mainly due to weak global demand. Events uh, have confirmed that Europe can take a leading role in promoting, promoting an adequate global response to the crisis. In a period when the US was primarily preoccupied with its domestic problems and its elections, Europe has coordinated its own response to the financial crisis and has taken initiatives for a coordinated global response. In the ECOFIN Council of uh, the 7th of October, a number of important decisions were adopted that are leading to a coordinated support of financial institutions across the European Union. It was decided that support should be coordinated around the following principles. First, support for financial institutions must in principle be temporary. We are not talking about nationalizing or renationalizing financial institutions. Second, member states should take full account of the interest of taxpayers. So the use of taxpayers' money would be really careful. Third, existing shareholders of financial institutions should bear the full consequences of any intervention. Fourth, that governments should be in a position to bring about a change of management in troubled institutions. Fifth, that management should not retain undue benefits and that governments may have the right to intervene on executive remuneration. And finally, that the legitimate interests of competitors should be protected through the application of state aid rules, because this is extremely important, that competition should be maintained, and that negative spillovers from country to country should be avoided. The objective of these uh, European principles, which has been guiding all European plans in all of our countries, was to ensure the adequate capitalization and liquidity of European financial institutions affected by the crisis and, and mainly to ensure that adequate liquidity would exist in Europe to avoid a credit crunch because a credit crunch would be extremely harmful for the real economy, for employment, for growth, for investment, for consumption. In addition, a number of other decisions were taken at in, in the beginning of October. The maximum amount of guaranteed deposits was raised to 50,000 uh, 50, euros and the EU Commission was urged to revise certain accounting rules relating to to banks. Finally, the European Investment Bank was urged to mobilize an additional 30 billion euros to support European small and medium-sized enterprises. These were the initial reactions from the ECOFIN Council, the Council of Finance Ministers. A few days later, these conclusions were strengthened in an extraordinary summit of heads of government of the Eurozone, and a special European summit on the crisis. And since then, a number of European Union countries have adopted financial market support plans based on the agreed principles. European leadership, however, was not confined to the coordination of European responses. It was extremely important that we coordinated our responses in Europe, but we also had to try to coordinate responses in the rest of the world. European leaders took the initiative for a global conference to address the reform of global financial governance the G20 Washington summit will take place in a next uh, tomorrow and uh, the day after tomorrow and in another extraordinary meeting on the 7th, on the 7th of November European leaders agreed on a common approach to this problem to the global problem they agreed both on common principles and some specifics the principles that have been agreed are the following first of all that regulation has to be strengthened. This means that no financial institution, no market segment, and no jurisdiction in the world must escape proportionate and adequate regulation, or at least oversight, because one of the problems was that we did not have adequate and comprehensive regulation at the global level. Second, that the new international financial system must be based on the principles of accountability and transparency, which are, self-explanatory principles, that we that risks must be assessed so as to prevent crisis, because there was an underpricing of risks for many, many years, and it was also agreed to give the, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, a central role in a more efficient financial architecture. One might say that all this is wishful thinking. However, the European agreement included a number of specifics with regard to rating agencies, with regard to accounting standards, codes of contacts, and the initial role for the IMF. Of course, we now have to wait and see what the G20 summit will be able to produce. The important thing is that despite some initial disagreements, European Union countries are going to this conference with common principles and a common approach, and this is extremely important. It has not happened on many other occasions in the past. So to conclude, Europe has in the last two months been proactive in promoting a coordinated approach to the financial crisis, both within its borders but also outside its borders at a global level. A lot will now depend on other global players, the new US administration, the Japanese, the Russians, the Chinese, and other emerging economies. However, coordinating our response to the financial system is not the end of our task. Coordination on measures to support and reform financial markets will hardly suffice to deal with the effects of the crisis on the real economy. Much more is called for. In the recent forecast of the EU commission, growth in 2008 would be 1.4% in the EU and 1.2% in the euro area, half of what it was in 2007. In 2009, the EU economy is expected to grind to a standstill at 0.2%, 0.2%, essentially zero, and for the euro area, the forecast is 0.1%, before recovering to 1.1% in 2010. So we clearly see that the avoidance of a credit crunch and the restoration of normalcy in financial markets is only a necessary first step. It is not a sufficient condition for dealing with the effects of the crisis on the real economy, and more coordinated responses are required, especially in the fields of fiscal policy, structural policy, and trade policy. Discussions in Europe have addressed the question of coordination of fiscal policy. They have addressed the problem of how to apply the stability and growth pact, which is an important element of European economic management. The Stability and Growth Pact, for those of you who are not fully aware of what uh, it contains, requires all economies in the Euro area and the European Union to maintain fiscal deficits below 3% of GDP at all times, to strive to to achieve fiscal balance in the medium term, and to ensure that public debt is no more than 60% of gross domestic product, or, if it is higher than 60%, to be tending towards the 60% limit. The pact envisages corrective action for those economies that do not meet those fiscal objectives. It was revised in 2000 and 2005, after a number of economies in the Eurozone failed to correct their excessive deficits promptly. And the revised pact, the pact that exists after 2005, is more flexible regarding the time available for the correction of excessive deficits, but more demanding regarding the attainment of fiscal balance, the, the medium-term objective. Those economies that have not attained fiscal balance are required in so-called good times, obviously we're not living in good times now, to reduce their deficits by at least half a percent of GDP every year. Having uh, discussed the economic situation recently, both the EU Commission and the ECOFIN Council have determined to apply the pact flexible, in a flexible manner in in the current circumstances. The decision is that economies that have fiscal room for maneuvers could use it to try to counter the slowdown in aggregate demand or the contraction in aggregate demand, either through the operation of automatic stabilizers or through limited discretionary measures. Those that do not have enough room for maneuver should take care not to exceed the 3% limit. In case that the country exceeds the 3% limit, the deviation should be small, and in any case, temporary. The flexibility envisaged in the revised pact will be utilized, and attainment of medium-term fiscal balance is implicitly postponed for better times. The rules of the pact are obviously well defined. The problem is that a number of countries have been, or are expected to be, very close to the 3% threshold. Some Euro-area economies, such as France, Italy, Portugal, and Greece, have only recently exited from the excessive deficit procedure, and their projected deficits for this year and next year are very close to 3%. Other economies, such as Ireland and Spain, are experiencing a recent widening of fiscal deficits because of the crisis and the slowdown. Germany is the only large Euro area economy with fiscal room for maneuver. Its fiscal deficit is almost zero. So among among those outside the Euro area, the UK is expected to have an excessive deficit in both 2008 and 2009. And the EU Commission estimates that for 2008, the deficit in the UK will be 4.2% of GDP, and for 2009, 5.6% of GDP. So clearly, the UK has a a very big uh, fiscal deficit and limited room for, for maneuver if the pact were to be applied. Thus, although there is flexibility in theory, and we have agreed to use the flexibility that exists, in practice, this flexibility, is of limited practical importance because the economies in the Euro area did not create sufficient room for maneuver in previous years, in the good years, so to speak. So did the UK, of course. And fiscal policy appears at this critical juncture to be a severely constrained instrument for countering the contractionary forces that have been unleashed by the financial crisis. We do not have real flexibility if we were to stick by the rules of the stability and growth pact. According to the latest estimates of the EU commission, budget deficits in the EU as a whole are expected to rise in 2009 from 1.6% of GDP to 2.3% in 2009. And uh, the corresponding estimates are for the euro area as well. At the same time, the US is running huge deficits. In 2009, the US deficit is 5.3% of GDP, and in 2009 it is projected to grow to 7.2% of GDP. Japan's deficits are projected to be relatively modest. So Europe and the Euro area cannot really adopt a US-style fiscal expansion without jeopardizing the credibility of the Stability and Growth Pact. This is a severe constraint which may cause the real effects of the financial crisis to persist much longer than in the US, much longer in Europe than in the US. And for that matter, the UK, which is not a member of the Euro area, and which is behaving in a way which gives it more flexibility. Under the current circumstances, the only option is for Germany to adopt a sufficiently large uh, fiscal stimulus package that would pull both Germany and the rest of Europe out of trouble, But in my view, it is rather unlikely that this option would be adopted by the German government. In conclusion, the room for fiscal coordination at the European level is in practice extremely limited, and obviously so is the scope for better fiscal policy coordination at the global level. In Europe, we cannot expect much from fiscal policy in the current circumstances, although, in principle, a a measured European stimulus package could prove quite effective in avoiding the worst of the contraction in demand. Other options to boost the European economy also have important shortcomings. Structural reforms to increase productivity, such as those envisaged under the Lisbon agenda, would imply very long lags, even if they were to be promptly implemented. However, it is important to persist with such reforms. It is important to persist with the Lisbon agenda, as this would prepare the European economy to take better advantage of an eventual global recovery. It cannot help too much in the short run, but it prepares the European economy for a better behavior in the medium term. It is also extremely important in this juncture to allow the European social model to function. The existence of provisions and institutions that can soften the impact of the crisis on the more vulnerable sections of our society is an important advantage of the European social model. Within the available budgetary limits, the European social model should be allowed to work. And it is exactly in periods of crisis like the one we're experiencing today that the importance of the European social model becomes more apparent. It is also extremely important to strive in order to revive the Doha round of trade and development so as to strengthen the momentum for an open global trading system and to avoid protectionism. The protectionist spiral of the 1930s was a major contributing factor to the Great Depression and we have to avoid such a spiral at all costs. It is important that we keep trade open and we do not revert to fortress national policies. We seem to have drawn, in general, the right lessons from the mistakes we made in the monetary field during the Great Depression. Monetary policy has responded adequately to the crisis. Important initiatives are currently underway to restore appropriate regulation, liquidity, and confidence in financial markets. And Europe, to the surprise of many, has shown remarkable leadership in this juncture. Because of high levels of public deficits and debts, the room for a fiscal stimulus is limited. And despite a poor track record on previous occasions, we must not abandon the efforts for better coordination of fiscal policy at both the European and the global level. We may not have the room to expand everywhere, but a better coordination of fiscal policy would help and the role of the incoming US administration may be instrumental in this respect. If we manage to negotiate at the global level a coordinated and measured fiscal stimulus package for the global economy, we will have taken an important step towards a swift recovery from the slowdown in the global economy that we're experiencing now. At the same time, we should not lose sight of the medium term. Structural reforms that would increase productivity and protect the environment must continue if not accelerate. We must undertake new initiatives to further liberalize international trade and to integrate emerging economies to the global economy. We must continue to pursue the millennium development goals because it is very important that the very poor countries, Africa and other poor countries, uh, continue to, uh, developing quite fast. And finally, long overdue reforms in global economic governance must be brought forward to integrate Russia, China, India, and and Brazil, at least those countries, in the global economic governance system. To conclude, an economic crisis is not only a threat, it is also an opportunity. We have to continue with the proactive approach that European leaders have adopted in recent weeks, let us encourage the incoming U.S. administration to follow a similar path. And let us all together try to correct the shortcomings of the existing model of globalization and produce a new model that will work for the benefit of all the peoples of this globe. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for that, uh, lecture, George. We now have the opportunity of uh, the questions and answers that we uh, promised. There are various colleagues around the room with uh, microphones both at the top and the the bottom. So uh, what I'd like to do is to take a number of questions. uh, And when I call you, if you could simply wait for the microphone to come to you, and then uh, to begin with your, your name, please. There's a gentleman in the blue at the back, please.
2: Hi. Pierre Bacas, third year economic student at the LSE. Thank you very much for this very interesting talk. Uh, My question is, considering that leading Eurozone countries,
1: such as France and Italy, have already broke the 3% deficit rule in the past, and the urgency of uh, coordinated fiscal action, could the
0: pact be rethought and the 3% threshold be increased? Okay, Thank you. Can we uh, take the gentleman in the red? Uh, here, please.
2: Yep. Thank you very much, uh, my name is Anton, I'm a European Business School student and my question is, uh, you've mentioned the Lisbon agenda and uh, how is it possible, taking into account that uh, the referendum across all the countries uh, did not prove to be successful? How is it uh, possible to revisit the issue? And the related question is Do you think uh, it's appropriate uh, to continue uh, to consider taking on board new countries to the European Union when there is conflict of interest uh, inside the existing, across the existing countries? Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. With some hands, uh, the gentleman in the middle, please. I'll come later. Mr.
1: George Kurtz, also Lucia Luna. Um, despite the financial crisis uh, that we're witnessing today, you retain your faith in globalized financial system. However, almost a year ago, um, you introduced a bill blocking the acquisition by foreign investors of companies of strategic importance to Greece. How do you reconcile this protectionist move, your commitment to a globalized financial system?
0: Okay. Can we take those three at the moment?
1: Yeah. Okay. Can I? I cannot from here, right? On on uh, on the pact. Uh, as I said, it's uh, it's extremely uh, the pact is extremely tight, and whatever we we do regarding the flexibility of the existing pact, we have serious constraints because of the deficits that have accumulated in in the good times. We have not corrected the deficits in the bad times, so the room is not there. Uh, the what I can what I can say is that. There are many who argue that, that that the pact could be suspended, but but it's not something. It's not it's not a decision that can be taken lightly, and and I, I don't just mean for institutional reasons, because a suspension of the pact or a or a further revision of the pact would require uh, unanimity essentially, which is very very difficult to, to find around this uh, around this uh, initiative. But there is also another very, very important constraint, and this constraint is uh, the, the behavior of markets. We have seen in the Eurozone that spreads over the Bund for countries with high deficits and high debt uh, have have widened recently. So countries find it very, very expensive to service their debt. Countries that, uh, that have accumulated a lot of debt in the past. So it's not just about uh, the rules of the pact, but it's also about the reactions of markets and the existence of the eurozone itself. And I believe that at this stage we should uh, maintain prudence. We should uh, utilise whatever room for manoeuvre uh, we have, uh, because in uh, in case that we were to uh, to embark on a fiscal expansion for countries that already have fiscal problems, the markets may may punish them very very severely and this may bring about problems for the very existence of the of the EMU of the of the eurozone itself now the lisbon agenda of course has had its uh, pros and cons and uh, and its uh, shortcomings and it's very very difficult to pro- to promote reforms uh, it's an imperfect agenda obviously because politically it's uh, it's extremely like like the pact itself it's politically very very difficult to implement but it's um, it's it has the right priorities. We should continue as much as we can. And of course, uh, we have to take into account uh, uh, social, uh, social conditions and social reactions and social tolerance uh, to whatever reforms we can uh, bring about in, in, in such a period. But it is, it is important that we continue. And we, not, uh, we do not abandon even more. We should not uh, reverse the Lisbon agenda. Enlargement will become, of course, much more difficult. Enlargement was difficult before the crisis. Uh, we have a problem of governance in uh, in the European Union after after the, the enlargement of the last uh, few years, and we must first solve these problems of, uh, of governance before we embark on another major uh, round of, uh, of enlargement. Now on sovereign wealth funds, uh, it is, there, it, uh, I take your point that uh, that we have put some constraints on uh, on uh, on acquisitions or. Uh, of uh, by sovereign wealth funds in uh, strategic sectors increased. This is something that has been taking place in uh, in many other countries. We now have uh, beca- been uh, been coming close to an agreement on how to deal with sovereign wealth funds. Uh, in fact, in the last Ecofin, there was uh, during the lunch, uh, many representatives from sovereign wealth funds have uh, uh, attained uh, attended the lunch and have discussed with the European ministers of finance. And uh, we, we shall maintain uh, an open uh, trading and investment climate. But of course, we have to be quite clear about the rules that, uh, that these funds operate, that these funds should be, should be operating in a transparent fashion, like any other fund that should be, uh, should be so, uh, seeking uh, economic objectives and not political objectives.
0: OK, thanks. Time for some more questions. The gentleman at the very back.
2: Okay. Mr. Minister, thanks for your speech um, Looking back in 2004 when, the, when uh, New Democracy came in power and uh, you undertook the, minister, the Ministry of Finance and Economics you decided to tell the, to tell the truth about the performance of, of uh, the Greek economy to your uh, European partners I mean the um,
1: manipulation of data by the PASOK uh, government um, do you believe that uh, it was uh, a right decision and if you had the opportunity to make uh, the same decision now uh, would, you change, would you change something? Thanks.
0: Thank you. Other, other questions? Gentlemen, uh, here at the front please. Uh, if you could just wait for the microphone.
2: You connected the crisis to serious deficiencies in the functioning of our global system. Well, the problem may be that there is only global market, not global system, in the sense that it has been no attempt to set up a global regulatory regime. Now, an indication about that is that you referred to serious fiscal imbalances. Now, and I am going to put a question. If the Eurozone countries have to keep their debt to below 60% of GDP, how it can be right and not dangerous for a huge, huge economy like the United States to develop a debt which exceeds 400% of GDP at this moment, which is something about 50 trillion dollars.
0: Thanks. Other questions, please. Uh, The gentleman at the front here, please.
1: Ores Soldatos from Total Gas and Power. Um, I'm going to have a practical question. Uh, Over the past uh, decades, we've seen the ECB uh, fighting the inflationary monster, uh, as I remember it correct from the website, um, do you think uh, that after the crisis, I'm not talking now, after the crisis, they will be still fighting the inflationary monster instead of the asset bubble monster?
0: Okay. Could you just take one more? Yeah, one Please. More. Uh,
1: Gentleman here. Just. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Dear Professor Leonor Skoufis, welcome in London. You said uh, that no financial institution or market should escape regulation. Yes, you did. Now, I'm wondering what kind of market would be having a regulation. I mean, in practical terms, how we are going to implement that regulation. I, I, we witnessing the Greek government last week to beg the greedy bankers to reduce their interest rates and they refused. How we are going going in practical terms to implement such regulation? Thank you. Okay. The questions get easier. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on... Uh, on transparency of uh, fiscal accounts, yes, I would do the same again today. And and I think that events since then have uh, confirmed that this decision was the right one. Uh, There is no way that you can um, can belong to a club that has specific rules and not be transparent and equally transparent as anybody else. And in fact, uh, since 2004, in the European Union, the Eurostat has become uh, is becoming more and more demanding in terms of transparency and uh, and the data data rules. So we acted at the right time as well, before we were forced to act. Now on uh, global markets and uh, and uh, uh, the global system and regulation, which were essentially similar similar question. It is true that we have global markets, and especially global financial markets. But we have national systems of regulation. And therefore, the differences in national systems of regulation were being uh, exploited by the global financial markets. And many loopholes existed, and many loopholes still exist. So the, this is exactly the objective of, of the, G7, the, the G20 uh, summit that, uh, that is taking place in the next few days, to devise a better system of global regulation, more coordinated. Uh, of course, you need an institution to to coordinate the actions of national regulators. It is not easy for national regulators to give up, give up their uh, their rights, but we need better coordination and better uh, cooperation. Uh, the European, um, as I mentioned, the European uh, idea is that the IMF should be given this role. The IMF has been losing its traditional role in in the last few decades, um, and uh, we have an, a, an institution that can do this job. And uh, of course, it's a question of how the IMF will do it. And uh, there are still differences. There are differences between, uh, on, the, on the details, there are differences between uh, European economies as well, differences between Europe and the US, and many other differences may emerge in, uh, in the G20 summit. But, but, but everybody understands that we have to do something, that we have to have a better system of global regulation more coordinated, and we cannot rely on independent regulatory authorities in every particular country and every particular market. Now, Could I just
0: sure. uh, ask yeah. a yeah. follow-up? Uh, I could, from what you were saying in the lecture, that uh, the broad argument you were making would be something generally supported by Gordon Brown. It was mm-hmm. difficult to distinguish uh, your argument from his.
1: Uh, Gordon Brown and uh, Sarkozy were were among those who who first... Uh, Came up with this idea, and, uh, and it was their ideas that were that were uh, the, the the initial impetus for for taking this European uh, European uh, position, and on many other uh, issues also in, on, on the financial market rescue plans, Gordon Brown and Sarkozy were were the key the key movers. It's important in the UK at yeah. the moment to find friends of Gordon Brown. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, on. Um, Now, on global imbalances, we have a similar problem. It's a problem of global economic governance. In the past, the G8 or the G7 used to operate uh, much more effectively in terms of coordinating fiscal policies and monetary policies for the global system. Uh, As you know, since the collapse of Bretton Woods, coordination was was less formal than uh, than during the Bretton Woods system. Uh, This informal system of uh, coordination has become far too informal and far too partial, because the G7 and the G8 do not include a number of important players now in the world. So if we were to address global imbalances, we have to to bring everybody in. There's no point in the G7 getting together and asking the Chinese to do something if the Chinese are not participating in the discussions, or asking the Russians to do something if the Russians are not participating in the discussions. Uh, and it's never easy to ask the us to do something uh, even even though the us participates in the discussions uh, but uh, but but we uh, the, we, we shall st- we shall continue with uh, with an informal system of global governance and uh, global imbalances have to be addressed and global imbalances uh, are are uh, come from all parts of the world it's only we europeans that we think we are not contributing to global imbalances but but even that is not uh, Exactly true, but but certainly the European macroeconomic situation until the recent crisis was much more balanced than uh, than uh, in the rest of the world. Now the ECB, the ECB has um, in the in the first uh, stages uh, stages of the crisis, the ECB continued looking at inflation. So as you, as you know, the ECB did not reduce interest rates because inflation was still a major problem in Europe. It was almost four percent in at the end of two thousand and seven uh, and beginning of 2008, the ECB provided liquidity, but without reducing its official uh, interest rates, which signify the stance of uh, monetary policy. So they provided liquidity so that the markets could function, that we did not have a credit crunch, but the interest rates were left uh, unchanged. After inflation um, came down, the ECB started using the interest rate uh, instrument as well. So it is always a difficult uh, a difficult uh, job, I think the ECB has done a very good job in the last 10 years of, of EMU. And as I said in my lecture as well, the ECB has done a very good job in, in dealing with uh, with the crisis and is still doing a very good job on, on that. Now, on regulation of, um, of uh, financial institutions, uh, as you know, there are in, in every country, regulation takes place by appropriate regulatory authorities. There was one issue which I addressed, which was the global regulation, then we have the national regulation. In Greece, that you mentioned, the regulation of, uh, of banking institutions um, has been entrusted to the Bank of Greece. The Bank of Greece is, is the regulator. Uh, it it uh, has a number of instruments to, uh, to force banks to stick by the rules, but manipulating interest rates is not it's not one of uh, of its uh, uh, of its prerogatives. It cannot manipulate interest rates. What it can do is, it can ensure that there is competition, there is no collusion, there is transparency, there is no there are no um, uh, practices that are uh, against the regulations. But you, the Bank of Greece does not set all the market interest rates. Bank interest rates are set through a competitive banking system. Now, of course, uh, through our uh, liquidity plans, all all European governments, including the Greek government, will have additional leverage on the lending behavior of the banks, because if if the government is providing guarantees or capital uh, for the banks to provide liquidity to the economy, it will have additional leverage on where this liquidity will go, on what terms, and uh, so on and so forth. But again, don't expect that the government will take over the management of the banks uh, Like in every other European country, the management of the banks will be still in the hands of bankers. The rules will be tighter, regulations will be tighter, and uh, government oversight will be tighter.
2: But you are the chair of the economy, George. (coughs) The green economy, anyway. Squeeze
0: them. (coughs) (laughs) Thank you. I guess uh, the implication of his question was that uh, you talk about... uh, leverage coming from uh, investments and guarantees by the government? Where was the leverage?
1: Well, uh, in in Greece, in in the system that we have uh, set up, uh, every bank that participates in in the system will have an an appointee uh, on its board from the government. The appointee will have a veto on uh, on bonuses and remuneration of the top uh, executives. And we'll also have a veto on uh, on the distribution of dividends. Dividends will all, that will be distributed will be the minimum amount. And apart from that, there, will, there is a board which is chaired by the minister of economy. There are no, no charges, uh, of course, in in free economy. But 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 there is a there is a board. <laughs> which will be convening every month to be looking at how the extra liquidity provided for by the government is being utilized by the banking sector and giving directions.
0: Thank you. I have accused others of stopping you speaking, and I now do the same. Uh, Could we take some questions, gentlemen, at the very front, please?
2: A Janis from uh, the Department of Economics or oh, uh, Geography, excuse me, PhD student. Uh, just a very quick question regarding the IMF role. You mentioned before in, the, in your presentation that uh, the European leader decided to give a more important, let's say, role in, uh, in this new financial model. So, as far as I know, IMF so far provides uh, funds and loans to poor and developing countries, and mainly is controlled, let's say, by the United States.
1: So could you please clarify um, what is the reason for giving a central role uh, to IMF for the European uh, economies? Among the two Bretton Woods institutions, the the World Bank and the the IMF, the the two initial institutions, because now we have the World Trade Organization as well, um, the IMF is the one that is dealing mostly with monetary matters, monetary and financial markets. So the idea is that instead of creating a new institution, that will become the global financial regulator, we should give this role to the institution which is closer to the financial markets and closer to to monetary conditions. Uh, Since uh, we do not have fixed exchange rates and uh, a global system of fixed exchange rates anymore, and the IMF has not been asked uh, in in the last few years to provide balance of payments loans to, to many countries, its role has been diminishing anyway. It has a, an experienced staff. It has a, a, a global view of the, of the global economy. It has a, it knows how the global economy operates, and we. The idea is to give it a, a limited, at first, a limited role in coordinating financial regulation. It will not become. Uh, there is no agreement for the IMF to become the global financial regulator itself, but to, to act as a as a an institution where co- the coordination will will take place of course all this um, uh, should not hide the fact that there are disagreements among even European governments as to the exact role of the of the IMF in a new uh, global architecture but uh, but uh, these are the things that will be discussed and I'm sure that will be very hotly discussed in the in the g20 summit uh, to, tomorrow and okay. the day after Thanks, Some more questions.
0: gentlemen. Uh, Andrew here, please. In the, the uh, just, sorry, could you just pass it back and then it will come forward.
2: Uh, Andrew Dismore, Member of Parliament, a friend of Gordon
0: Brown. Uh, <laughs> so he's got at least one in the audience. Numbers are increasing all the time, yeah. two already. Yeah. Uh, towards the end of your lecture, you mentioned the importance of the Doha round. Uh, bearing in mind how difficult it was to get any progress, even when times were good, and how, how many years that round's been going, now that times are hard, there's signs that the new administration in the U.S. might go down the protectionist route, which I agree with you, would be, would be a bad move. Uh, just how realistic is it politically that there's going to be progress in the Doha run? Isn't that really wishful thinking? Thanks, yes. Uh, let, let, I mean, me, let me just okay, take, take this, because okay. it's a very
1: important question. Yes, I, I agree with you that it will, be, it will be too optimistic to expect that we shall come to a conclusion very, very quickly. But we must keep the momentum in, the, in that direction, because if we don't, do not press for the momentum to, to be in the direction of further liberalization, uh, we, we may see very quickly the momentum be, being in the exactly opposite direction of, of protectionism. So even as a, as a defensive measure, we should, we should continue to be pushing for, for further liberalization. It's difficult. I know we have you know, very difficult issues. Uh, among uh, uh, various things on my portfolio is uh, trade policy is, uh, is one that I have, uh, I have been dealing with. I know the difficulties, but we have to, keep, uh, to keep, uh, keep pressing in this direction.
0: Can we take a group of questions? Can we pass it to the
2: gentleman in front? Here, please? Thank you. Notos Mitarakis, Fidelity Investments. Minister can ask about uh, can stay in the Greek banking system. If the Greek economy is slowing down, as statistics are saying, chances are that non-performing loans in the banking system will trend upwards. At a time where the Greek households, the Greek businesses are more geared versus what they were five years ago. Given this outlook, do you think currently the Greek banking system is properly uh, pricing risk? Do you think that the spreads are overpricing or underestimating risk?
0: Thank you. Can we take the gentleman? Do we have. Yes, we just had the patience, my friend. Thank you. Michael Sergirou from Cardiff Business School. Uh, Professor Alokoskoufis, I fully take your point about the importance of flexibility in a time of crisis, I mean real economic flexibility. I know that uh, you are an advocate of flexible, well-regulated, but essentially free markets and so am I. Can you give us a firm reassurance today that you will continue with your modernization agenda in Greece despite the fact that we are going through these difficult times as well as despite the fact that I know that you face, even from what your own party, some irresponsible, uh, irresponsible uh, suggestions about going back to protectionist measures. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, gentleman here. Please, please. Oh, yeah. please. Hello. Thank you for your speech. And I, I'd like to ask a question. The, uh, SGP is not uh, regarded as a very strong, uh, very strong fiscal rule. Because of its weakness in the enforcement power, and just then you have mentioned a lot of extreme limitation, and well, doesn't mean that you, you think the SGP should be even that the enforcement of SGP should be even softened. And if yes, is there any uh, side effect to the uh, physical discipline in the long run? Thank
2: you very much.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. okay, let me. Let me take the questions in turn. First of all, the Greek uh, the Greek banking system. It uh, the Greek banking system uh, in this crisis have, has uh, has uh, has stood much better than, than many other Greek banking systems because uh, because it was not exposed to, to toxic products. It was not exposed to serious risks. It was not exposed to to various uh, structured uh, instruments that uh, that were at the heart of the of the problems. Um, however, the the fact that uh, that there was deleveraging in the global financial system, the fact that the uh, interbank markets essentially ceased uh, to operate, etc., is affecting all banking systems, and uh, and this is the main reason that we have uh, put in place uh, this uh, this liquidity plan, which is a modest uh, liquidity plan to ensure that the Greek banking system will will be able to find enough liquidity to. Fund the economy. Now, of course, the pricing of risks um, is related to to the cost of funds to to the Greek uh, to the to the Greek banks, and uh, and I feel that with the guarantees that we put in place and um, and the capital that uh, that is uh, made available, uh, the pricing of risks must, will be much more reasonable. We shall not be trying to through this um, plan that we have uh, put in place to to uh, impose punitive rates to, to the banks. We, we want to help the economy and the, uh, and the pricing of risks must be uh, must be reasonable. Of course, at the end of the day, it, it is, it's going to be the markets that will determine the, the pricing of those of those risks. Now right now the, the markets are you know, extremely risk-averse. The, the banks uh, do not trust each other. Uh, risks are probably now we've gone to the other extreme where risk was uh, uh, underestimated uh, in the past. Now risk is probably overestimated. But uh, but if uh, if normalcy is uh, restored and we we are all in, all in Europe and throughout the world we're trying to restore normalcy into financial markets, uh, then uh, the pricing of risk will will come to reasonable uh, reasonable levels now on um, on the reform agenda of the greek government the greek government is is set to continue its uh, its reform agenda it is uh, quite clear but of course our priorities now have to be uh, shifted to dealing with a crisis because we, there is a crisis going on uh, the reform uh, agenda will continue and as i said in my speech for the for the world we must continue looking at the medium term we should not underestimate the medium term but it is, um, uh, you know, obviously now we have to look more at the short term because the short term risks are uh, are, uh, are very uh, very severe and very very large, and we have to make sure that uh, we do not allow the economy in the short term uh, in the short term to deteriorate. The Greek economy, uh, I-, I did not speak about the Greek economy during my speech. I, uh, I did that on purpose. I did not want to this to be a on Greece it was about the global economy but if you look at the uh, uh, projections of the EU Commission you see that the projection for Greece uh, for next year is that Greece will have a a growth rate of two and a half percent compared to 0.1 percent for the eurozone so so still Greece is projected to to have a let's say respectable uh, growth rate uh, next year we have to make sure that uh, there is enough liquidity, there, are, there is enough consumption, and enough investment to, to make this projection uh, be realized. Now, on the SGP and, um, and how it is uh, implemented. The implementation of the SGP is a, is a very a collegiate uh, type of affair. As you know, every month, uh, the Eurogroup gets together. And our main preoccupation, I have been a member of the Eurogroup now as a minister for more than four years, four and a half years. Uh, every year, every month, we get together and we, we assess each other's economy and each other's application of the stability and, uh, and uh, growth pact. And uh, I can assure you, uh, having had the misfortune to undertake the management of the Greek economy at a time when the deficit was at 7.2% of uh, GDP, that the application of the rules is effective. There is enough peer support but also enough peer pressure and enough pressure from the commission to make sure that, that countries that are in excessive deficits uh, should be doing what they, sh- they, they must to, to reduce the deficits. And in Greece, we managed to reduce the deficit over two years. It was the first time that, uh, that the revised uh, pact was, uh, was uh, enforced. After Greece, Portugal was given three years uh, France was given more years, Germany was given more years and, and uh, right now uh, all the countries that were in excessive deficit in 2004 and five, are now outside of the excessive deficit procedure. Unfortunately the crisis may force more other countries or some of the same countries to, to, to go back to the excessive deficit procedure but the decision is to keep applying the rule um, uh, firmly but flexibly and this flexibility is required uh, this time and the Commission has been has shown uh, good sense the European Commission which is making the proposals to the council but also the council has been showing uh, good, good sense in, uh, in the application of the pact.
0: thank you I think we have uh, run out of time um, let me say a couple of things uh, first of all I don't think I've attended a lecture at the LSE before where there's been such warm applause halfway through a lecture uh, so, I hope you take uh, that as a uh, positive sign. Uh, we thank you uh, for the lecture and also your willingness to answer the questions uh, so well. And uh, we uh, are pleased to have welcomed you back uh, to the school. So on your behalf, uh, can I say thank you to Jorgos Aligus Rufus.